following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. You will turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, this evening we will be looking at verses 6 through 9. A few years ago, I read an article in the Huffington Post, not a recommended publication, by the way. It was entitled, The Newsboys Former Member George Perdiccas is Now an Outspoken Atheist. So if you're a Newsboys fan and you didn't know that, so sorry. (laughs) The article opens, one of the original members of the world-renowned Christian rock band has come out as an atheist. George Perdiccas, an early member of the Newsboys, said he's lost his faith in God and that the band's current members aren't as squeaky clean as they appear to be. Perdiccas wrote about his faith journey in a blog, writing, I always felt uncomfortable with the strict rules imposed by Christianity. All I wanted to do was create and play rock and roll. And yet most of the attention I received was focused on how well I maintained the impossible standards of religion. I wanted my life to be measured by my music, not by my ability to resist temptation. The musician also had a few choice words for the band members who make up the Newsboys today, none of whom were in the original lineup, saying the truth is, from someone who knows what went on then and what goes on now, the Newsboys aren't as holy as they profess. Instead of wearing a mask of righteousness, they should acknowledge that they are struggling as much as everyone else. Now, these comments reflect something very common among those who are the so-called militant atheists, that variety of people in our culture today. The claim for many of them is that they used to be Christians, but they read something or they studied something, they came to their senses, and so they're no longer able to be Christians now. After all, who wants to live a life of strict rules imposed on them while being expected to maintain, as he said, the impossible standards of religion. And of course, ensuring that those who are Christians are identified as hypocrites is atheist rhetoric 101. But there's two important things that most people miss when hearing or reading something like this article and what Perdiccas was saying. First, the Bible is abundantly clear that nobody was a Christian and no longer is. In other words, you can't stop being a Christian if you truly are a Christian. 1 John 2.19 says of those who have departed from the faith that they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, there are those who believe for a time that they are Christians, but eventually they walk away from the faith. They apostatize. But it's not that they were Christians and then they stopped. They never were in the first place. They were just imposters. That's the whole idea behind Jesus' parable of the soils, right? Remember, there are those who shoot up quickly and the sun bakes them, or are those who grow up very quickly in the beginning, but they get choked out by all the weeds and the thorns and the thistles. 
They're choked out by the world. They never were believers. It just looked like they were for a time. And we've all uh, most certainly known people like that. They were never believers. But the, the second thing that I point out is perhaps a bit more difficult to define or to identify, and it's the way in which he describes faith. You see, the Christianity described by Perdiccas has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the central focus of the entire Christian faith. The gospel that he understood when he thought he was a Christian was hopelessly confused with the law, and so his faith was placed in the wrong thing. His faith was in what he could do instead of what Jesus has already done. And when he struggled to do, he was done. And so ultimately, if a person confuses the gospel with the law, their faith ultimately has to be in themselves. So Perdiccas never had faith in Christ. He always had faith in himself. And so the jump to atheism was not that big of a leap. But what about you? How do you define faith? And if I were to ask you to explain what it means to say that you have faith in Christ, what would you say? Can you answer the very simple question, what is the gospel? How is the message of the gospel related to the faith of the believer? And where does faith come from and how does it work? Last time, as preparation for this passage, a few weeks ago, we looked at the faith of Abraham, and we focused where Paul focuses here on Genesis chapter 15. Specifically, our aim was to see that Abraham's faith wasn't simply in a promise or an idea, but it was in Christ himself as the object of his faith, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so this evening, we will look at Paul's argument to show us that the object of Abraham's faith is the very same object of faith for all who are truly the sons and daughters of God. And so we're going to spend our time in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3, but to give us some context here, we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you and do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Amen. Well, at this point in the letter, Paul shifts his focus back to the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, if you read through Romans and you read through Galatians, you might get tempted to say to Paul, enough already. 
you keep writing about this. But it is the most essential, fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. We need to understand justification. Now, he's going to look further into the works of the Holy Spirit in the sanctification of believers later on in the letter, but he wants to show the Galatians something of the historical basis for justification by faith. This isn't something new that he invented. And as a people with a historical heritage rooted in the Protestant Reformation, it's important to recognize that justification by faith isn't a doctrine of the 16th century. Now, surely the doctrine was highlighted once again by Martin Luther and the others. It was at the forefront of importance when it came to the Reformation and all that it was about. But we need to see, along with the Galatians, that justification by faith is the way that God has saved mankind from the very beginning, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And so Paul's point now is founded in a historical argument as he focuses on the faith of Abraham. And the first thing that he wants us to see in verse 6 is that believing in Christ is now and has always been the only way of salvation. Look again, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's very important for us to remember the context in which Paul is writing to the Galatians. Remember, he's dealing with the Judaizers, a religious group who had infiltrated the church in Galatia. They were convincing more than a few of the believers there that they not only needed to have faith in Christ, but they also needed to submit themselves to aspects of the Mosaic law, the dietary restrictions and circumcision chief amongst them. It was a subtle addition to the gospel, but it was an addition nonetheless. And so what did Paul say? He said it was another gospel, even though there is no other gospel. And so may it be considered anathema. Anything added to the gospel makes the gospel something other than what it truly is. And so Paul is continuing to build his case for the truthfulness and the purity of the gospel he has preached to the Galatians over and against that which they were now hearing and being tempted to accept from the Judaizers. So Paul strengthens his argument against the Judaizers and their false gospel by reaching all the way back in history to Abraham to show that Abraham's faith Just like our faith, if we are Christians, was in Christ alone. In other words, Abraham was not saved by his works. He was not saved because he was able to fulfill the law. Abraham, like you and I, was justified by faith in Christ alone. Now, of course, he didn't have all the information we have. He didn't see it all in the way that we have the benefit of seeing in the scriptures. But nevertheless, his faith was in Christ. And this idea of justification by faith alone is a baffling concept for people. It really is. You'll often hear things like, you mean to tell me that all you have to do is believe? Well, yes. So long as we're defining what it means to believe in the same way, then yes. That's exactly what we're saying. Believe on Christ. Repent of your sin, and you will be saved. Yes, but what else? It's our very nature to want to earn our place in this world, isn't it? And so it turns it upside down when we're confronted with the reality that we can't. 
In our culture, it really rubs against the primary ideas we have about how we are to receive anything. If you work hard enough, if you put enough hours in, if you put forward enough energy and effort, you will get what you're striving for. That is the American way of thinking. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is depending on works, surely, but not your own works. It's depending fully and completely on the works of Christ to provide you with the righteousness you do not have for a right standing before God because no matter how hard you try, you cannot live up to what God has commanded. From day one of your conception, your nature was bent toward sin. And so from day one of your conception, you were unable to earn your way into God's favor. If you were to have everlasting life, you have no option other than to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope for anyone is faith and hope that Jesus' perfect law-fulfilling life, his sinner's death, and his resurrection is what we are depending on. It's the only thing that will see us through the grave onto everlasting life. And Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary that you might live. And so the gospel is depending on his work and his righteousness given to you that you might live instead of depending on your own flawed, imperfect, sin-soaked works. But the Jews had just, a just as difficult a time seeing this as, as we do. It's natural human nature for us to assume that our salvation will require us to do something, to work. So there are actually an abundance of really fascinating Jewish writings that try to answer this question for the Jews. Why did God choose Abraham? They really wanted to answer <coughs> that question. So they have this understanding that God is good, God is just, God is fair. So in their minds... And the way they articulate it in their writings, certainly not biblical writings, is the idea that Abraham must be different than everybody else. If God looked on Abraham with so much favor that he was pleased to use him to birth an entire nation who would be his people, God must be different. He must be better than us. Uh, in, sorry, Abraham must be different and better than us. God is different and better than us. So you can read all these backstories about Abraham that were made up and rationalized in their minds as to why Abraham was better than others. And there's quite a few of them. But here's one for example. There's a story about the building of the Tower of Babel. And as the story goes, the people gathered together to make plans to build their own tower up to heaven and make a name for themselves. But amongst all the people, Abraham and 11 others stood against the plan. And those 12 men were given seven days to change their mind. And if after seven days they didn't change their minds, they would be burned in a fiery furnace. A lot of common themes you're hearing here. By night, a guard came to the 12 men in prison and told them that before the seventh day arrived, he would open the gates and let them all run free to escape the fiery furnace, claiming that the gates were broken open by an angel. Eleven of the men thanked the guards for their finding favor in his eyes, but Abraham wasn't buying it. Even if it cost him his life, he wasn't going to flee. He wasn't going to bow out based upon a lie. And so in the end, 
The great leader became very angry about the 11 men who left, but he still had Abraham and decided to throw him into the fiery furnace, even though he remained back. And here's how it ends. And they took him and built a furnace and lit it, and they threw bricks burned with fire into the furnace. And then the leader, Joktan, was with great emotion, took Abram and threw him along with the bricks into the fiery furnace. And the leader, excuse me, but God caused a great earthquake, and the fire gushing out of the furnace leaped forth in flames and sparks of flame. And as it burned, all those standing around in the sight of the furnace and all of those who were burned in that day were 83,500. But there was not the least injury to Abram from the burning of the fire. And Abram came out of the furnace and the fiery furnace collapsed. And Abram was saved and went away to the 11 men who were hidden in the mountains. And he reported to them everything that had happened to him. And they came down with him from the mountains, rejoicing in the name of the Lord. And no one who met them frightened them that day. Now, a fun story perhaps. Nowhere close to anything we read in the scriptures. But what's the point? The point being that they simply could not believe that Abraham was justified by faith alone. There must be something special about him. There must be some reason God is looking on him with favor in a way different than he does others. And so this idea was present that Abraham was a great righteous man who was worthy of God's choosing him. This is just one example of many, many stories that were written to get this point across. But Paul, especially in Romans chapter 4, he challenges this idea that Abraham must have been chosen by God because of some kind of special uh, righteousness in him. The The Jews really struggled that Abraham's righteous standing wasn't because of him, but because of whom he believed in. So they attempted to fill the silence with their own stories. But unlike the Jewish ideas about Abraham, the Apostle Paul presents him not as the one righteous person worth calling and choosing, but rather as a man like everyone else, an ungodly man in and of himself. And if you read the stories about Abraham that are actually in the Bible, you come to find that is very true. Abraham did some shady stuff, right? He wasn't, he wasn't a man we would look at and say across the board, everything he did was good and upstanding and righteous, right? He had problems just like we have problems. And yet, God called him. God declared him righteous. God granted promises to him. And so God's decision to choose Abraham was not anchored in Abraham. God's decision to choose Abraham was anchored in something within, within God himself, and the mysteries of his own counsel. In Romans chapter 4, Paul proves his point, and really it's the same point he's alluding to here in Galatians, that Abraham being justified and being counted as righteous couldn't have been because of any works, for at least two reasons. First, because the text itself says Abraham was counted righteous because he believed the Lord. Very simple. But more specifically, number two, Genesis 12 and 15, if you read these chapters, Genesis 12 and 15 come before Genesis 17. I know you know that. Why does that matter? Because Abram, Abraham is blessed by God in Genesis 12. He's counted as righteous in Genesis 15. 
And it's not until Genesis 17 that he is circumcised. In other words, it was while Abraham was uncircumcised that the blessings of God came to him. It wasn't any kind of work, and it certainly wasn't the kind of work that the Judaizers were now saying had to happen. But why did Paul see Abraham so differently than the Jews saw him? In fact, it, it, would be, it, it wouldn't be a far stretch to assume that Paul had the same kind of ideas about Abraham prior to his conversion when Christ met with him. So why a different idea now? Well, because it gets to the heart of Paul's story. Remember, Saul was destroying Christians. He was killing them. He was overseeing their murder when God saved him and declared him righteous as a completely unworthy man. And this becomes the story of the Bible that Paul sees everywhere. And so the thing that, that really shapes Paul's reading of the Old Testament is what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ for all humanity, but he knew it in and of himself. This is what distinguishes him from all of the early Jewish writings that were trying to justify why it was that Abraham was chosen. And Paul is saying to them, none of that's true. Abraham wasn't any different than you and I. He wasn't special in any way. And I am a prime example of one who is unrighteous in and of myself, and yet God chose to save me and use me anyway. You cannot have a properly Christian reading of the Old Testament without Christ. And Paul saw it, and he exposed it in objection to those who were holding out some hope that their works would save them. And friends, there are some of you here this evening who are confident that your sin is too great for you to ever be right with God. You assume yourself to be unworthy of salvation because of who you are and what you have done. And as I said this morning, I can tell you this evening, if you think that, then you're right. You are unworthy of salvation because of who you are and what you have done. But you see, God's concern is not who you are and what you have done in as much as his concern is who Christ is and what Christ has done and whether or not you are trusting in him alone and believing in him alone that you might be counted as righteous that his righteousness would be counted as yours even though you don't deserve it. And so Abraham's story and Paul's story can be your story. You are who you are and you've done what you've done because your great hope is in yourself. And all of your efforts to be a good person only make you to transgress the law of God more and more. But when your hope and faith is in Christ alone, he credits all that Christ did to your account. And he declares that you are not guilty, not on the basis of you, but on the basis of Christ. Faith in Christ alone, that's what saves us. Not being circumcised, not eating the right kinds of food, not teaching Sunday school or going to church or feeding the hungry or being pro-life or going on mission trips. All great things, but not the gospel. The gospel is faith in Christ alone. But let's be clear of another thing. Faith is not the one human contribution to our salvation. That would make the, the human a partial subject of their own salvation. We often think of faith as something we sort of have in ourselves and we have to exercise it. Instead, Paul is pointing us to the absolute fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior 
So justification is not by works, but by faith. But the question still remains, what is faith? Faith is not our contribution to our salvation. In Romans, Paul contrasts having works and having faith. Faith is simply seeing the mountain God calls us to climb. And we continue to stand at the bottom of that mountain looking up and saying, I can't do it. I just simply cannot do it. And when I'm finally at the place to see that I can't do it, I can then say, but God in Christ has already done it. He's already climbed it for me. The impossible has come true, and God has done what he said he would do and what only he can do. So faith says no to me, but says yes to God. God is the one who promises and does that which is impossible. At the, at the sight of sin, he creates salvation. At the sight of nothing, he creates reality. At the sight of death, he creates life. And faith is the admission that I cannot justify myself any more than I can bring myself to life. But only God himself can do it. And so faith is not a choice. Faith is a receiving of that which God does to me and for me and in me. The impossible that is made possible in God. We're not talking about being sick and needing a doctor. We're not talking about being fatally wounded and needing a treatment or treading water and needing a rescue. We are as dead as can be from the very beginning. And we need Jesus to come to us like he did to Lazarus and say, come forth. You're dead. And we need to rise up from the grave and walk in the newness of life. So you see, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not because he was smarter, not because he was more holy or more worthy or better looking than anyone else. I wish that was the basis. I'd be fine. It was because God showed mercy and God gave grace and God granted faith and Abraham received it and it was counted to him as righteous even though he, like you and I, was a serious transgressor of God's law. Now, I want to point this out too. It can be missed, it's not explicit, but I want to point out something that Paul is doing here in his argument. He's brilliant in so many ways under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he's doing here. Remember, Paul is defending the gospel against Judaizers. And so to do that, where does he turn? He goes directly to the Old Testament scriptures. And not only that, he goes directly to Abraham, the father of their faith. And so there's no doubt that in their appeal to discredit the preaching of Paul, the Judaizers were turning to Old Testament texts. And so it was important for Paul to show them that their interpretation of the text was entirely wrong. But as J. Gretchen Machen points out, he says, but only the shallowest reading of the epistle can possibly lead a man to think that the apostles' appeal to the Old Testament was merely an argumentative device, useful in defeating the Judaizers, but not valu valuable in the apostles' own mind. Nothing could be further from the fact. And why is that? Well, for Paul, as was the case with Jesus, the scriptures are the, the, the decisive word in all kinds of controversy. 
And so for anyone who claims that they're a red-letter Christian, you've probably heard from those people before, I'm a red-letter Christian. I only read the words of Jesus. Those are the only words of the Bible that matter for me as a believer. Well, they're doing something that Christ himself did not do. They're doing something that the Apostle Paul did not do. And what use is the rest of the Bible if we're just going to look at the red letters? I hate when Bibles have red letters at all. It's implying those words are more important than the rest. That's not the case. All of Scripture is important and is to be used by God's people. And so we can never forget that the real source of life in the church is what we see in the Bible. When the church seeks life apart from the Bible, as we can find many examples of throughout the church's history, it faces a dramatic loss of actual spiritual power. Because it is through God's word, it is through the Bible that the spirit is pleased to work. Word and spirit never work in separation from one another. And so if we want the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that is the longing of every Christian heart, we want more of God's spirit, then we must be tied to the scriptures. And in the same way, if we want the scriptures to have any effect on us in our hearts and our lives as encouragement or rebuke or, or everything, all the different ways we look to the scriptures, the spirit must be present. And if he's not, we can read it and understand it, but it will be of no true lasting effect for us. And so Paul understood that, and he turned even to the Old Testament scriptures. He's going to great lengths to show that the Old Testament saints were saved in the same way as the New Testament saints, namely by grace through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from any works of the law. The only difference is that for the Old Testament saints, they received the gospel by way of promise, by way of illustration, uh, they knew something was coming, but didn't know the details of what that might be in its entirety. While we have the sure and final word contained in the scriptures for all of us, recalling what has already happened in the life and death of Christ. They were looking forward. We're looking backwards, but we're all looking at the same place. We're all looking at a cross on Calvary. Now, Paul goes on in verses 7 through 9 in his description of Abraham to describe that all believers, both Jew and Gentile, are sons and daughters of Abraham. Look again at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, the Judaizers were constantly beating the same drum for the Galatians. If you Galatians want to belong to God, you need to become children of Abraham. You need to get in Abraham's family line so that the blessings of salvation that were promised to Abraham's offspring can be yours. The only way to do that is to be circumcised like Abraham was, to follow the law like Abraham did. But Paul is not willing to go down that road. He really raises a question that he's, he's going to take a lot of time to answer, but then he eventually gets toward uh, the, the final answer at the end of Galatians 4. And the question is, who are the true children of Abraham? 
Well, you know the answer. Most of you went to children's Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. What's the next part? I am one of them, and so are you. And that's Paul's answer to this. We are the children of Abraham if we are in Christ. But, but Paul's raising a counter-argument to the Judaizers' heir. He's saying, all right, if you think being a son or a daughter of Abraham is such a big deal, let's look at Abraham. And we see that Paul has already pointed us to this. How was Abraham declared righteous? Was it because he forsook his fatherland, his family, and all of his friends back in the city of Ur? Was it because he accepted circumcision and observation of the law? Was it because he was ready at the command of God to sacrifice his son Isaac? Of course not. Abraham, again, was justified solely on the basis of believing God, and his faith was counted as righteousness long before he knew anything about circumcision or had taken the, even the first step in his long journey toward the promised land. In fact, we can say of Abraham, although he became the father of the Jews, he was justified when he was still a Gentile. And Paul says to the Galatians, just like you, Galatians, you who were justified, you who received the Holy Spirit through hearing the gospel and by faith alone, not by works of the law, just like you is exactly what God did with Abraham. And and so Paul's words are a precision-guided missile into the theology of the Judaizers. All of their hope, all of their assurance was wrapped up into this one thing, that they were Jews by birth, and therefore that meant that they were the children of Abraham. And if we're the children of Abraham, then all the promises of God must be ours. But Paul says, being of Abraham by the flesh accomplishes nothing. It accomplishes nothing. The true children of Abraham are those who believe those who ground their relationship with God and thus the very existence itself on the basis of faith. This is why Paul says in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're right with God. It never was and it never will be. In other words, it's not just those who are Jewish by flesh who are the children of God. It is actually those who have faith in Christ. These are the true people of God. These are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. These are the ones who have claim to the promise of God. And so if you are a Christian, you are far more a child of Abraham, if you will, than one who is born ethnically as a Jew but has nothing to do with Christ. Martin Luther wrote, Descent by blood does not create children of Abraham in God's eyes. Abraham was the father of faith, and he was justified before God, not because he had physical descendants, but because he believed. Therefore, anyone who wants to be a child of Abraham, the believer, must also believe. His descendants of flesh and blood have inherited what flesh and blood have to offer, which is nothing but sin and death. Remember when Jesus challenged the Pharisees on this very issue in John chapter 8? He told them, you know, if Abraham really was your father, you'd be more like him. 
But you're not. You're, you're a lot more like your actual father, the devil, which tells me the devil is your father and not Abraham. Right? Some soft words for the Pharisees, right? That line didn't make it through the final edit of the book on winning friends and influencing people. <laughs> but Paul's point is Jesus' point. If the Galatians shared Abraham's faith, they were already his children. And so they were heirs of all of the blessings and all the promises that were given to Abraham's offspring. In other words, those who enjoy salvation are Abraham's special children and have become such in exactly the same manner in which they have become the children of God, just like Abraham, by faith. But Paul, being very careful and very meticulous in his argumentation, roots this all, once again, in a historical reality. He reminds us in verse 8 of something foreseen long ago in the Scriptures, which is a quotation from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. Paul writes, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, pay attention here, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. I love the language that Paul uses here. When he says it was the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. And it's through that very same gospel that the people of the world will be blessed. Through which the people of God will be justified. And it's the New Testament that makes sense of this for us. A Savior would come and it would be through the line of Abraham. In and by the gospel, he would be presented to all the nations as the object of saving faith, and people would believe in him and would be justified. It would be counted to them as righteousness. That is what was foreseen. That was what was promised. That is what was spoken of many times and in many ways, and now it has happened. Justification by faith has come And it is of worldwide significance in terms of its geography. It's not just for some people to hear. It's not just for a a small people group in the Middle East. It's for all men and women and children to hear on every square inch of the globe because it's the only hope for men and women and children to be right with God. Wherever the gospel goes, it announces the richest blessing that can be announced to sinners. It communicates to everyone who believes that we can have hope that, as I said this morning, the chaos of this world is not the end. This is exactly what happened in Galatia during Paul's first journey through there. By faith in the Jesus whom Paul preached to them, the Galatians were heirs of the same blessings of justification that Abraham himself enjoyed. It is no different today. All across the world, this very Lord's Day, helpless sinners have heard of a great Savior to whom they can give all of their lives to in their times of desperate need. A Savior who pardons them and clothes them with a perfect righteousness the moment they believe in Him. So then, the question has to be for all of us. Are you of the faith? Do you stand in the faith of Abraham? Do you stand upon the righteousness of Christ alone? Is Jesus Christ the sole object of your faith? If so, then you are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Because because it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of God, who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. 
If you are not of the faith, I put Christ before you this evening as the only hope in life and death, and I put Christ before you as the only one who is worthy of our worship. I put Christ before you as the sacrificial Savior who lived and died that we might know everlasting life. And so, dear friend, you too can be a son or daughter of God. You must look to Christ by faith alone. And if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And it can be said of you, he or she believed God and was counted to him or to her as righteousness. Stand amongst God's people and be counted as righteousness. Look to Christ that you might live. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for not only your word, as significant as it is in and of itself, but all that the word that you have given to us shows us and all of the connections we see throughout the entirety of Scripture. Lord, we we see the beauty of the unity of the Bible. That the Apostle Paul, so many years later, could look back to the faith of Abraham and say, just like Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, we too can do the same. We too can be counted amongst those who will receive all the blessings and promises of God. We too can be amongst those. As we look to Christ, we can recognize that there's nothing in ourselves that we have to offer that will be of any benefit. But as we look to Christ, all the benefits that are necessary in order for us to have everlasting life have already been obtained. And so we pray, Lord, for those of us who are believers, that you help us, Lord, to remember the great reality of the gospel. Every time we seek to get on the treadmill and run nowhere fast by working harder and trying more to do the things that we think will be pleasing to you in our own strength, help us to get off, to repent, and to remember that Christ alone has accomplished all that is necessary for us. And so all of the things that we seek to do in obedience to you, all the things that we seek to walk in in holiness and godliness, not to earn anything, but because we love you and because we're thankful for you and all that you've done. And we know that all that you have commanded is not for us to do, to please you in such a way that you will keep us saved, but to do because we know that they are best for us, because you only give the best gifts to your children and you direct us how to use them in a way that will be the greatest blessing to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to walk rightly in obedience, that you help us to be encouraged by the faith of Abraham, by the faith of the Apostle Paul, by the faith of our fellow brothers and sisters here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, by the faith of our brothers and sisters around the world throughout the history of the church. And may we be numbered among those people. And I pray especially for those here this evening who do not know Christ, that even in this very moment, at this very second, you might be pleased to send your spirit to raise them up from their spiritual death and give them new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it could be said of them by faith that they too were declared righteous in your sight. Do that work, O God, we ask for your glory, for your namesake, and for the strengthening and building up of your church. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. 
For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.